Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Dirksen, the lead pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit myselfland.com. Well, we're working our way through the book of Luke, one chapter a week, um, through the entire book of Luke, and we're in Luke chapter 13, and if you're new here, every week I just take uh, one section. We don't get through the entire chapter, we don't even get close, but I take one thing of the chapter, whether it be a parable or a story or something of the passage, and we, I preach on that, and then the next week we move to the next chapter, and we're working our way through the whole book of Luke that way, and today we're in Luke chapter 13, verses 1 to 5, and this is what it said. There were some present at that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices, okay? So Jesus is sitting there in a group. There's a whole bunch of people around as often when he was in ministry. There was often crowds around him. And they're telling him about a tragic event when, uh, you know, Pilate murdered a bunch of uh, Jews from Galilee. And Jesus answered them. It's, and it's interesting to me, and I'm going to touch on this in just a couple minutes, but first I'll just read the passage. But it's always interesting to me how Jesus completely shocks us with what he answers. He never answers with what we would answer or what we would think he would answer. He always just goes somewhere completely different. And I, I just love that about Jesus. He's very unpredictable. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. All right? So let's look at this. Verse 1 there again. They tell him about the murder of a bunch of Galileans by Pilate. Now, we don't uh, know exactly which incident in history uh, this is referring to, but we know uh, from history that, that Pilate was a really cruel and violent leader. And Josephus, who is a famous Jewish historian from this time, records actually a number of different instances when Pilate killed, uh, murdered Jews on a religious holiday, because they're talking here about people being killed and the blood being mingled with the sacrifices. There was one Passover where Pilate uh, killed about 3,000 Jews, and Josephus says the temple was littered with their bodies, okay? So this could have been uh, an, instant, an instant like this that they're talking to Jesus about. Uh, there was another Passover where Josephus says that Pilate killed about 20,000 Jews in the Passover. Now, Pilate, uh, uh, Josephus was known to sometimes get his, wrong, his numbers wrong and exaggerate, but whatever the case was, it was a lot of people. And there was another incident that we know, and again, it could have been one of these incidents, incidences, it could have been another one, there's lots of incidences, uh, but in one incident, uh, Pilate had a whole bunch of soldiers dress up as, as uh, ordinary civilians, and they had daggers, and then at a certain signal, the soldiers pulled out their, their daggers and just murdered a whole bunch of Jews, just stabbed them to death, just indiscriminately. Okay, so, so really, really terrible, and a really, really terrible man, and really, really terrible thing, and it's maybe one of these incidences, or maybe it's something else entirely, but they bring up, you know, something like this has happened, and they bring it up to Jesus, okay? And they talk to Jesus about it. And what's interesting to me, one of the things I like to do when I'm meditating on Scripture is I sometimes just like to, I, before I even read the answer, I like to think to myself, what would I say in this case? And what do I think Jesus would say in this case? Because it all often gives a contrast. And this is why I never cease to be amazed at how he surprises us. And it's interesting to me how Jesus doesn't respond. And the first thing he doesn't do is he doesn't go off on a rant about how evil Pilate is. Now, I should just stop there for a moment. I, I don't mean by that that it would have been wrong for Jesus to do that. 
I also don't mean by that that we should never speak up when, when leaders do evil things. We actually should. There is a place, especially for Christians, to speak up when leaders are doing wicked things, when world leaders and government leaders are committing injustices and doing things like that. There's a place for us to stand up and to, and to say, this is wrong, this is evil, what's happening is wrong. But, and certainly this is one of those cases, if I had been in Jesus' shoes and they were telling me about it, there's no question I would have gone off on a rant. And probably might not even have been godly, but I would have been like, that guy is just evil and, and he needs to be judged and that's wicked and all sort of stuff. And again, many of the things I would have said in that case would have been very true, but it's just interesting to me that Jesus doesn't go there. They say, look at Pilate killed all these Galileans, butchered them, mingled their blood with the sacrifices, and uh, Jesus doesn't even touch on Pilate. In fact, he tells the crowd, you need to repent. Twice he comes back to you need to repent. We're going to talk about that at the end of the message. And it's like, well, where did that come from, right? You know, another second thing I'm really amazed at that Jesus doesn't do is he doesn't give them some, like, uh, nice platitudes. He doesn't uh, apologize for God. Well, because he is God. But he doesn't go into this whole thing of, you know, oh, you know, God's going to turn this for good and just trust in God. God's good in all of this. And, and there's a reason, you know, God didn't want this to happen. He is God and he let it happen. And he doesn't even apologize. There's no apologies. There's no defending the character of God. Something terrible has happened. And he just goes, he goes straight to two things. And we'll, we'll look at them. One of them is the repentance one. We'll get to that at the end. Okay. But well, the first thing he does, even before he gets to the repentance, is he goes straight after the wrong thinking and theology of some of the Jews who were in the crowd that day. And he says this, and he answered them, and again, this just comes out of left field. This is not where I would go in the conversation at all. But he says, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they, were, because they suffered in this way? So he knows what they're thinking. And, he, and some of the people in this crowd, at least, it was a common way of thinking in, in those days, but there was this thinking that bad things happen to bad people. So, uh, or another way to say it would be, you know, if you're following God and you are doing all the right stuff and you're following God, then it good, it's going to go good for you in your life. And if you're not a believer or if you're not following God well or if you're disobedient, then bad things can happen to you. And some of the people in the crowd, that was part of their theology. And Jesus says, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners, that this happened to them because they were unfaithful or disobedient or they just weren't walking with God as closely as you guys are. Is that why this happened? And then he answers it in the next sentence. He says, no. Okay? The very next verse he says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Here's the truth. In this lifetime, bad things happen to good people and bad people both. That's what Jesus is saying here. In this lifetime, and I'm not just talking about a little bit bad. I want you to think about this. We're not talking about a little bit bad here. We're not talking, you know, believers can sometimes get the flu or people who walk with God might have, you know, various little struggles here and there. Pilate butchered a bunch of people. Like there's a whole bunch of people, moms and dads and sisters and brothers and kids who that night, because of Pilate butchering their family members, they went to bed crying because they'll never see their husband again or their wife again or their kids again or their parents again. And Jesus says, you think that only happened to them because they were bad? Absolutely not. Bad, not just bad things, horrific, terrible, awful things happen in this broken world, happen to good people and bad people both. Now, you might be sitting there and you might be thinking, well, I already believe that. 
And you might be thinking, what I'm talking about is there's certainly, like, does that kind of thinking even exist anymore? Well, certainly we know there's an extreme strain. There's what's called, you know, the whole prosperity teaching thing where there's certain uh, strains of, of teaching and churches that teach God only wants good things to happen to his people. If, if you just have enough faith and you just pray enough, it will always turn out well for you. If you just have enough faith, you're not going to die of disease or your business is going to go well and you're going to prosper. And there's that whole strain of th- uh, theology. And Jesus just takes it out right here, right at the knees. You think this happened because they were worse? You think this happened because they didn't have enough faith? You think it happened because that has nothing to do with that? Bad things happen to good people and bad people both. But you know what? It's not just the prosperity strain. I actually think this kind of thinking has crept into uh, many Christians into our thought patterns here in the West. It's like we've had a little bit of a mixture of the American dream come together with Christianity. And even if we don't believe in prosperity teaching, there's a, little, there's a piece of us that just thinks, if I'm following Jesus, there's certain things he won't let happen to me. And the reason I know that's true is because Every time there's any kind of bad things happening, you've got all these Christians in North America wringing their hands, and they're going, is God good? Does God exist? Does he answer prayer? I know Christians who are bitter because they prayed certain prayers, and it didn't get answered the way they wanted them to, or stuff happened that they didn't understand. Why did I have to go through that? And now they're mad at God. They're bitter at God. The only reason to be bitter at God when bad things happen to you is because you had an expectation that bad things shouldn't happen to good people. You might not be into prosperity teaching, but there was a part of you that just really believes deep down, if I follow Jesus, it all turns out, as long as I don't mess up somewhere real big, it all turns out somehow good for me in the end. Well, amen, it all turns out good for us at the end, capital E, yes? And God walks with us in the middle of things. But Jesus' point here is that awful things can happen even to good people. It has nothing to do with what they did. All right, that's a really important truth. Now, I want to take a few minutes now and just do a little bit of a rabbit trail because it's so good for us to have clear thinking about things. Amen? Amen. And I don't want, in this truth, we have to understand different Christians will sometimes camp out on certain truths and then they think that truth is the only thing there is and they'll ignore other things. But we need to bring them together. So some Christians will bring together this truth I've just talked about and they'll say, okay, yeah, bad things just happen. It's sort of random. It doesn't matter what you do. And they'll teach that there's no more consequences from God and people don't reap what you sow and if you just accept the blood of Jesus, it's all, it's all good. And they might take it as that way. And other people, they'll believe it's all about reaping and sowing. Anything that happens to you is because you reaped. If you reaped faith, you, you get back good stuff. If you didn't reap faith, you got back bad stuff. I want to show you that both things are true. I want to show you that sometimes bad things happen to good people. But also, there is a reality of reaping what you sow. There's no question, the Bible talks about reaping what you sow, that bad behavior will bring bad consequences. That there's no question. Okay, Galatians, I just want to take a little bit. I want to show you why different, I want to show you different reasons why suffering happens. So let's look at this. Galatians 6, verses 7 to 8. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But... The one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So what is that passage talking about in many other places in Scripture? You reap what you sow means that whatever you, your actions and your behavior brings consequences. There's no question about that. It's the way, it's the way God is. It's the way the universe works that he made. So, for example, if you have sex with multiple partners outside of marriage, there is a very good chance, and many people in our 
in our culture have contracted uh, terrible sexually transmitted diseases because of engaging in that kind of behavior. It is a consequence. It is you reap what you sow. It can happen, and it has happened to many, many people. Now, if you, uh, uh, like the Bible says, if you're faithful to one partner in marriage for life, you actually can't get a sexually transmitted disease. That's called reaping and sowing. Isn't it true that bad behavior brings bad consequences? Is that true? I know people who, uh, you know, uh, control by alcohol for years and years and years, are controlled by alcohol, drinking, drinking, drinking. Now they have terrible health problems, liver problems, all kinds of terrible, terrible things happen to their bodies because of abusing alcohol like that. You reap what you sow. It's, it's absolutely true. I know people who have, who have fried their brains taking drugs. It happens. You reap what you sow. Bad behavior brings bad consequences. If you sow into your marriage, if you're a selfish person and you get married and then you sow into that marriage, you don't repent and you don't change and you sow into that marriage a selfish, self-centered life, you don't reap a good marriage from that, do you? You reap a bad marriage. You might even reap a, a, a broken marriage or you might reap even a divorce in some extreme cases. But if you sow into your marriage selfishness and self-centeredness, you're going to reap it. That's what the Bible says. So, so some of the suffering in our lives, no question, some of the suffering in our lives is because of our bad behavior. Okay, so I just want to make sure that as we read this passage in Luke 13 where I'm saying, you know, some suffering comes has nothing to do with our bad behavior. But I just want, I don't want to throw this other truth that there is suffering in our lives that comes from our bad behavior. And all of us have some suffering in our lives that just comes from sin. Isn't that true? Okay? So there's different reasons why we suffer. And I just want to put this uh, um, uh, on, the, uh, on the screens there. Just to, it just sometimes helps just to have clarity of thought. Okay? So some bad things, some suffering happens to us because of our own sinful choices. But the Jesus' point in Luke 13 is that some suffering has nothing to do with us. So, and, and, and there's different reasons that might not have to do with us. So in the case of these Galileans who were murdered in, in Luke chapter 13, the reason they suffered was because of the sin of someone else. Had nothing to do with their sin, Jesus said. Had to do with Pilate's wickedness. Pilate was making wicked choices, and they and their family suffered because of his sin. And that's, and, and that's just still true today. There are so many ways in which all of us not only suffer because of our own sins, but we also all have suffering in our lives that's because of someone else's sins. Isn't that true? I mean, one tragic thing that, you know, that happens far too often you know, every year is you know, someone gets drunk. That's a sin. They get in a vehicle and they drive drunk. That is a very serious sin to God. You're putting people's lives at risk, and, and Jesus loves people. So drunk driving is a very serious offense in God's eyes, not just in the law's eyes, it's in God's eyes. But someone gets in a vehicle and it happens far too often in our culture and they drive and they hurt someone. Now that person who got hurt and their family has to live with it if they died or they got injured, they didn't die or get injured because of their own sin. They're suffering and their family is suffering because of the sins of someone else. In this broken world, we don't just suffer because of our sins, we sometimes suffer because of the sins of other people. Is that not true? And we could talk about many, many different kinds of examples, many different kinds. Okay, um, and Jesus gives us one in this case. It's it's uh, Pilate, but there are other reasons why we suffer in this world too, and it isn't always sinful choices. Others are our own. Uh, another example Jesus gives us right in this passage is in verse four. He says this: "Or those eighteen on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem?" And again, he says no. Okay, and in this case, so a tower falls. That's an accident. It wasn't, and Jesus says, it's not because they sinned. The tower fell. That's not someone else's sin. That's just an accident. 
And there's also suffering in this world. There's suffering where we suffer for our own sins. There's suffering where we suffer because of someone else's sins. And then there's just suffering that happens because this world is broken. This world is broken, and there's all kinds of suffering in this world that comes because of, you know, natural disasters and accidents and disease and things like that. And it's nobody's fault. It just happens because this world is broken. Okay, and again, so this is, again, so, but very clearly Jesus says it does not all happen because of our own sins. Now, again, I want you to notice that Jesus does not apologize for the evil in this world. You know, lots of people nowadays, there's this whole thing, they don't believe in God because there's suffering in this world. They don't believe in God because they say, you know, how can, God, how can a good God allow evil? Now, that's the whole thing. I just gave a talk at high school about how a good God can allow evil, and I shouldn't really have brought it up now because now I want to go on a little rabbit trail. So let me just put this little thing in and I've got to get back to the message. If an atheist ever talks to you, and this is one of their favorite things, how can you believe in a good God when there's all this evil? And they might show you a picture of something going on around the world. And they say, how can you believe in a good God? How can a good God allow wars and genocides and things like this to happen? You know what the first thing, just remember this. You don't have to have all the answers for that. Anytime someone wants to ask me a question about evil, I always throw the question back on their lap. How do you answer it? See, they think only Christians have to answer the, 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 the question of how is there evil in this world. Everybody has to answer the question of how there's evil in this world. So how does the atheist explain? Does the atheist, the question is not, does a, do we have a good answer for evil in this world? I believe we do. But a question is, which worldview has the best answer for evil? Because there's evil in the world. So how does an atheist, an atheist comes to you and says, how can you believe in God? And I say, how can you not believe in God when there's all this evil in this world? Because how does an atheist explain evil? Okay? Well, let's talk about how, an atheist, how the atheist worldview goes. The atheist worldview is this. There was nothing. Okay? It's already been scientifically proven the universe has not always existed. It's scientifically proven beyond a shadow of a doubt. The law of thermodynamics, the Big Bang, there's all kinds of proof. The universe is not all, always existent. So at some point in in back before time, there was nothing. So the atheist worldview is this. There was nothing, and that nothing exploded for no reason into something. Great explanation. That nothing that exploded for no reason into something then self-organized itself into very complex things, and out of these complex things which were dead, life came. And by the way, if I can just, I'm really getting on some rabbit trails now, but just give me a couple minutes here. Can I say one other thing about life? Yes. Did you know that they're spending millions of dollars every year trying to create life in labs? And you sometimes hear scientists saying, like, basically, if they can, if they can make life in a lab out of non-life, it would, it would prove that there is no God. But do you know, actually, uh, first of all, I don't think they'll ever succeed. I don't think they'll ever actually see, succeed. But do you know, even if they do succeed, would that prove that there's no God? I'll actually be the first one on stage here to celebrate when they, when they make life in a lab. You want to know why? After all those millions of dollars and all those brilliant scientists working on it, it just proves there has to be intelligent design. Doesn't that, isn't that what it proves? If you have a whole bunch of scientists, if you can't get non-life to turn into life by accident, and you have to spend millions and millions of dollars and get really, really, really smart people to make it happen, then, oh my goodness, does that ever prove there must have been a God at the beginning to make it happen? Because it can't happen by accident. Amen? But anyway, so where was I? I'm, I'm just really getting stuck here. Yes, so 
atheists. I just want to just finish this just thought and then we'll, we'll go back. <laughs> so the atheist worldview is that nothing exploded for no reason and then life somehow came out of non-life and really all this is is a big accident and there's no meaning, there is no purpose in life. All we are is highly evolved animals. But wait a minute, if all we are is highly evolved animals, then what are you complaining about? You know, you watch a nature documentary. Any of you who ever watches a nature documentary on uh, Netflix for any amount of time, the gruesome evilness of nature is just insane, is it not? I mean, a male lion goes and kills all the cubs of another lion. And you go, I mean, if that was a human being killing all the children of another human being, we go, wow, this is evil. How can there be a god? Nobody, including the atheists and the scientists, complains when a lion does that to the cubs. Why? Because they're animals. And right in the nature documentary, they'll just say, well, it's just survival of the fittest. And they're just working things out, and this is how they compete, and this is why there's enough resources and stuff. But whoa, 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 whoa. If nothing exploded for no reason into something, and we're just the result of that, all we are is highly evolved animals, so why do we care when people die and suffer? There is no, there's not even such a thing as evil. And you want to you talk about there's no God? How can a good God allow evil? How can you cope with an evil you can't even call evil if there is no God? There's no purpose in it then. There's no purpose. If there is no God in a child that parent, you say, well, how can I talk to a, a parent whose child has just died and tell them there's a God who allowed that to happen? And I say, how can I talk to a parent whose child just, just died and say there is no God, their child died and they will never see them again? But if your child died and there was a God, yes, you suffered with that and you cried with that, but you'll see them someday again, amen? amen. And there's purpose to it because God is bigger. Atheism, they want to attack us. And by the way, an atheist might be here today and they might say, that's an emotional argument, which is my whole point in the first place. Your argument that there is no God because you don't like evil is an emotional argument. You can't disprove God with evil. And if anybody asks you about the problem of evil, you make sure that you see if they have a good answer first. And I have other good answers on the Christian side. There are some good answers as well. But we'll leave that because I already went onto a message that I wasn't supposed to be touching on. But, um, but my point is, Jesus does not apologize. He does not go into a long apologetic about evil. He just accepts that there's evil in this world. He just says it's, he's God and he allowed it to happen. And he doesn't give us an answer as to why. And he doesn't wring his hands and say, oh, you poor people. Now, I just want to stop here for a moment, too, and just say this. I don't want you to get the picture from this passage that Jesus is not compassionate. I really, I really believe if any of the families of these victims were there and they were the ones asking Jesus this question, I believe his answer to them would have been totally different. Jesus is absolutely compassionate. I mean, uh, John chapter 11, his friend Lazarus dies, he goes to Mary and Martha's house. Mary and Martha are there. They're crying to him because Lazarus has died. And John eleven thirty five. 35, what does Jesus do? He cries. He cries and he knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. That's how compassionate he is. Your crying and your hurting and your sadness moves Jesus' heart. When you hurt and when you go through things, Jesus feels it with you. He is absolutely compassionate. And I really believe here in Luke 13, if it was the families of the victims who were crying to him and saying, why did this happen? He still probably wouldn't have given them an answer to the question why, but he would certainly have held them and cried with them. Okay? And I don't want you to get the picture in all of this that Jesus is not compassionate. But at the same time, 
that we, that we fully know, and I've known and I've experienced in my own life, that Jesus is so compassionate with me and with others when we go through suffering. But at the same time that we hold that, there's also this other truth we have to get a hold of, and that is that horrible, not just bad things, but horrible, terrible things happen in this world, and Jesus doesn't stop them from happening. It's just the fact of the matter. And I want you to notice here that Jesus does not say, he does not use this as a recruiting tool. He does not say to the crowd, follow me, and I'll make sure this never happens to you. He doesn't say that. Because the fact of the matter is, he does allow these things to happen to his followers. I know people in this church and lots of people around the world who have contracted all kinds of terrible diseases, neurological diseases and dementia and cancer and diabetes. People I pray with, some of you are here at this service right now, horrible things and Christians go through them just like everybody else. It's just true. And as Christians, you know, they followed God. They did everything he told them to do, and they had integrity. And, and their business went belly up, and they've got nothing there. And you go, well, what? I mean, God, if I pray and I do everything right, isn't it all turn out? Not in this lifetime. It doesn't. Towers fall on people. Bad people murder people, and it happens to Christians too. But many of us, and part of, I think, what Jesus is calling us to is, we need to have a, a sturdier faith. If our faith is shaken every time, oh, you know, maybe God doesn't speak. Maybe God doesn't listen. Maybe God isn't real. Maybe he isn't good. Why? Well, because I did this and it failed. It fell apart and it really hurt my feelings and it hurt this and it hurt that and I went bankrupt. And my wife got sick and my kid got sick and died and he didn't heal him. So maybe God, we actually need to have a sturdier faith than that. Because Jesus says, in this broken world, awful things actually do happen, and they even happen to Christians. I mean, Brother Yun was just here last week, and I was spending time meditating on the weekend a little bit about his story. You know, he gets put in prison for 10 years, not just the part about, you know, the nails getting stuck under his fingers and acid and the crazy stuff. He spent 10 years in prison. Meanwhile, he had two kids at home. Dude, 10 years... He doesn't get to raise his kids. Do you ever think he must have cried out to God? He said, Lord, why did you give me kids if I can't raise them? Do you ever think about that? Like, God, certainly this can't be your plan. Certainly this can't be your plan that I ha you give me kids and then I don't even get to see them or raise them. I'm stuck in this prison. And you know what? God doesn't actually give us all the answers. All we know is that it actually does happen. Awful, horrible things happen and Jesus does not stop them all from happening. And again, in that, Jesus is incredibly compassionate. But I want you to look at what the, the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised. Let me read that again. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial. Now, why couldn't he have just said trial? Why couldn't he have just said, do not be surprised at the hard things or the annoyances or the inconveniences? Somebody says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial. 
fiery trial. Now, I want you to notice here, Peter and Jesus and me are not saying you shouldn't feel sad when you go through this. He does not say, beloved, do not feel sad. When you go through tough things, feel sad, yes, and hurt, and at the beginning, shocked, maybe, and angry when it's injustice. There might be all these feelings that well up when we go through terrible things and despair, various things. But one thing Peter wants to take out of the equation is he says, do not be surprised. There is this weak foundation underlying the, the faith of many Christians in North America, and everything is shaken when bad things they didn't expect, and they thought God led them to do this or this, and then they had problems in their family, and they had problems with this, and they went through tough times, and they think, maybe God doesn't speak, and maybe God doesn't answer prayers, maybe God isn't good, maybe God doesn't even exist. And Peter says, we've got to have a more sturdy foundation than that. Do not be surprised. Feel sad? Yes. Feel stressed, and you're in the middle of it, and you're thrashing around? Yes. It's okay at the beginning anyway. We'll talk about the, the process of getting out of that just in just a moment. But do not be surprised. As if, when it comes upon you to test you, as though, he says there, as though something strange were happening to you. I mean, since the day that Jesus was born here on earth and lived here and then left, through all of church history, Christians have suffered. Christians in Africa have suffered. Christians in Asia have suffered. Christians in the early church suffered. They've suffered. Look at the pictures, like things we can't even imagine. I mean, Brother Yun shared some stories last week. Having his legs smashed with a sledgehammer. That is terrible, awful, horrible things. Why would God allow that? Well, we don't know all the answers why, but he does allow it. And it does happen. And Peter says, do not be surprised, as if something strange were happening to you. I mean, we in the West have got a whole end times doctrine, which we'll touch on. We do get to the end times in the book of Luke too. Jesus talks about it there. I mean, there's a whole end times doctrine called the pre-trib rapture, which is basically just all about us escaping tribulation. But look what Jesus said in John chapter 16, verse 33. In the world, you will have tribulation. Not you might. Not some of you. Not in the world, some of you will have tribulation but not the white people in North America. Everybody else will get their legs smashed and thrown in prison, and they'll suffer, the ones in the Muslim countries, will suffer, but, the, but the white people in North America, I'll rapture you before the tribulation because I don't want you to suffer. In the world, you will have tribulation. The Greek word there is philipsis, and it just means awful stuff, affliction and suffering and terrible things. But I want you to notice how much Jesus cares for you. But take heart. I have overcome the world. You want to know what the good news is in this mess? I'm going, give me some good news. I'll give you the good news. The good news is not that Jesus will keep you from suffering things. The good news is that Jesus will be with you in the sufferings and he has overcome the world. Amen. That's the good news. The good news is not that bad things won't happen to you. There will be things that happen to you in your life that you will not have an explanation for until you get to heaven. There will be things that happen to you in this life that will just confuse you. You will try to figure it out. God, why would you allow me to go through that? And there won't be an answer. But one thing you can know for sure is he will be with you and he has overcome it all. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. Well, I want to go back to Luke 13 in just a moment. But first, Peter has some really good advice, what we do with this. And I want to give you a piece of advice 
If we go back to 1 Peter chapter 4, he says this in verse 19. How do we go through this? He said, uh, you know, before he says, do not be surprised. Well, what are we supposed to do? He says this, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. I think that word entrust there is huge. Because a lot of what makes going through the fiery trial so hard is that we're thrashing. We're angry. We're trying to control the situation. We're trying to get out of the situation. We're trying to fix things. We're trying to make it stop. So we're mad. We're worried. We're stressed. We're thrashing. Peter says there's this place you can get in the midst of the fiery trial where you entrust yourself. You actually just let go and you entrust your soul to God in the trial. And you know what that word entrust means? It means giving over. It's like if you take your life savings and you go to someone who's an investor and they're licensed to invest money because you want to start putting away stuff for your retirement or something and you take that, that, those savings, or whatever you have, it's a value, and you bring it to them and you entrust them with your money. You entrust them. It means you're giving up control. You're giving it to them. It's, it's something very valuable to you, but you're going to trust them to manage it for you. Now, when you entrust something to someone, it means you actually have to let go of it. You're not now, when you entrust your money to an investor, you're not every day on the internet looking up the numbers and then sending them, I want you to do this, I want you to do that. I mean, that's a different, I mean, there are probably arrangements like that too, but what I'm thinking of is when you give something to an investor and then maybe you're putting money in there every month and you're just leaving it till you're retired. And you're trusting, they know better than me and they're going to make it happen. And so you entrust them. Or, or you go away for a long trip somewhere and you entrust your kids to someone hopefully that you can trust, right? You give them to someone you love, someone in your family or something. And when you entrust your kids to someone, it means you're giving up control. You're gone. You're on some kind of a trip somewhere. And you're entrusting. You're not making the decision anymore. While you're gone, you're not deciding how many times they bathe every week, if at all. Uh, you're not deciding you know, what they're going to eat every day for supper. You're, you've entrusted your kids. So you're letting go because you trust those people. You have to take care of my kids. I'll be back. I'll see you in a month. Or I'll see you in a few weeks, whatever it is. And Peter says here in this verse, when we're in suffering, there's this place where we get where we just actually let go and we entrust our souls. God, I, I can't figure it out. I can't find the answers. I can't fix it. And I can't get out of this. I'm just going to let go, and I'm going to let God, I'm going to trust that God's going to carry me through. And that is a wonderful, amazing place to get in a trial. Now, I just want to say one other thing. Again, I want to emphasize something. I'm not saying in this that when you get hit by trials, you just put on a stiff upper lip, and you go, I'm just entrusting myself to God. You know, when a big wave first hits you, it knocks you over. Isn't that true? It just knocks you over. If a big enough wave hits you, if you play, ever played in the ocean, and a big wave hits you, it just knocks you over. When you get hit with a fiery trial, it's going to knock you over. And it's okay that there's going to be some thrashing. There's going to be some anger. There's going to be some upsetness. There's going to be, you know, sadness and shock and all these things. When you get hit by a fiery trial, you're going to thrash, and God's okay with you doing some thrashing. My, My kids do not, I mean, I just had an incident last night. We won't get into that. But my kids don't always, don't usually handle pain that great either. And they're my kids. I'm okay with that. Something happens and they get hurt and they're screaming and they're hitting someone or whatever, right? They don't always handle pain well because they're kids. And they're my kids and I get that. They're in pain. I just want to hold them and help them. 
And Jesus is not expecting you, the moment you get hit by a fiery trial, boom, you're just straight into maturity. I'm at peace. I've entrusted God. No, no. You start by thrashing. The wave knocks you over, and Jesus is going to hold you. And you feel the Psalms show us how to feel angry with God and how show us how to feel shocked with God and how to feel fearful with God. The Psalms show us how to feel our feelings with God. I'm not preaching here that you shouldn't feel feelings strongly when you're in a fiery trial. But here's the point. You don't stay stuck there. The wave knocks you over and takes you for a tumble, and maybe it's injustice or something like that, and you feel angry, and you feel legitimately angry, and Jesus says, come feel your anger with me, but don't sin. And you feel anger, and you feel shock, and you pour those things out to God, but the point is, you don't stay there. There's a process. You have a goal. I'm not going to stay here. I'm going to thrash this out with God, but my goal is I want to get to a point in this fiery trial where I can actually just let go and trust Jesus. My goal is to move from thrashing to trust. And of course, if you're anything like me, this will not be something you do once. It will be something you have to do every day for a while. Because you'll have a good day, and you'll pray, and you'll meet with Jesus, and he'll touch you, and you go, oh, I'm trusting you. And by lunchtime, you're like, oh my goodness. And by the next day, you're already trying to control things, and you're mad again. And Jesus says, come and, and do it again. Come in every day. Come in every day, let go. Let go. Now, of course, this kind of letting go and trusting God also doesn't mean apathy and prayer. I am not talking about, and this is a very important point that I want to make. I am not talking, some people, there's a difference between fatalism and trust. Fatalism is without prayer. Fatalism is God's just going to do what he's going to do, and I'm just going to, Trust he's going to do it. And you don't even pray about it. You don't walk with him. That's fatalism. Trust is, I'm praying to Jesus. Oh, I need your help. Oh, Jesus, would you heal me? Oh, Jesus, would you help me through this, this trial? But there's a way to pray. Did you know, and, and by the way, can I just say this too? Different people, I'm also not trying to complicate. I want to make sure that when you leave this message, you do not have a complicated view of prayer. I am not teaching that you have to figure out what to pray for before you pray it. Like, God, I don't know, should I pray for healing or should I pray for not healing or whatever it is? Do you want to know what I always do? If I need healing, I pray for healing because that's just what I want. If I need to be delivered from something, I don't figure out, oh, God, what do you want me to pray? He doesn't even like those prayers. Oh, God, what do you want me to pray? If my kids come to me and say, Dad, what do you want me to want? Huh? Don't ask me what you want me to want you to want. <laughs> You're my kid and I love you. You just tell me what you want. I'm your dad. I might not always give it to you, but I want to know what you want. So I'll just make your praying very simple. Don't go into the prayer room if you're in deep need of something and you get someone to pray for you and you're like, well, I don't know. Should I pray for this or should I pray for that? Just tell them what you want. I'm in trouble I need deliverance or I need healing. You just ask for it. The thing I believe is, I believe when I ask God for something, even if he doesn't give me exactly what I want, he's going to give me something good just because I asked. Amen? So let's make things simple. But there's a way to pray like that that is trusting God to carry me through. And there is a way to pray like that that is trying to control God. And I'll tell you what the difference is. You can pray for healing and you can pray for deliverance in a way that says, God, I'm trusting you to get me through this. 
And you know you're praying it that way if you can worship him no matter what. But there are people, there are Christians, and they call this faith, and it's not faith. What they're praying for is, Lord, you've got to heal me, you've got to deliver me, you've got to deliver me. And if God doesn't do it, they're going to get bitter at him, and they're going to give up on prayer, or they're going to give up on God. And I've seen that happen with tons of Christians. I don't pray anymore. God doesn't listen to it anyway. That was never a prayer of faith. If you're just going to give up on God if he doesn't give you what, what you asked for, you have not trusted yourself to him. But there is a place that comes out of you are convinced that God is good and you will ask him for what you want, but no matter what happens, you know he is going to watch over you and he is going to protect you and you're going to trust yourself in your hand, his hands even as you pray every day for him to help you. Amen? Amen? Well, let's have one final perspective here from Jesus that we need. If we go back to Luke chapter 13, I want to just touch right here at the end on this repent. In uh, verse 4, those 18, the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were wor worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? And he says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent. Two times he does this. This is his most important point in the passage. They bring up a tragedy, he brings up repentance. They bring up a tragedy, he brings up repentance. Now, what does he mean by that? Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Does he mean that if those people are listening to him, don't repent, a tower is going to fall on them too? No. Does he mean that if they don't repent, they're going to get murdered by Pilate at some point too? No. I mean, he just finished explaining, no, it's not because of their bad things. This has nothing to do with you. Your suffering in this lifetime doesn't always have something to do with you, your bad or your good behavior. So when Jesus says, no, but unless you repent, you all likewise perish. What is he talking about? The thing you have to understand about Jesus is because he's God, his perspective is always eternal. Whenever you read through the Gospels, it's amazing. Jesus, we have tiny little this life perspectives and Jesus constantly sees the big picture. When he talks about perishing, he's not talking about the way you die in this life. He's talking about judgment day and he's talking about perishing for eternity. And you say, well, what does that have to do with anything? Well, again, according to Jesus, it has everything to do with it. They bring up tragedy, he brings up repent, judgment, eternity. They bring up another tragedy, he says repent, judgment, eternity. What does that have to do with suffering? Uh, actually, it has everything to do with it. Because ultimately, when we look at the suffering in this lifetime, the only way it can ever make sense is if we look at it in terms of eternity. If all you can see with your suffering... I mean, I think of some of the Christians that live around the world right now. I mean, I, like, I just read some of those books, that Esther Chang book I told you about last week that Eugene Bach wrote. Christians in North Korea right now and places like that, they really, in the human sense, have not a single thing to be happy about their entire lives. They have no hopes and they have no dreams in terms of this lifetime. Nothing. There is nothing good. Like, literally, nothing good for them to look forward to in their lives here on earth. But we have this idea that some, I mean, we don't even, we can't even comprehend suffering like that. And the only way you can make sense, how can you make sense of a life that is from beginning to end so horrific? The only way it can ever make sense is it can't be redeemed by anything in this lifetime. It only makes sense when you realize in terms of eternity, this life is so tiny short, it's a dot in the line of eternity. That's the only way it can make sense. But we sometimes have a hard time seeing that because there's enough good in our lives in this life that we want to redeem the suffering now already. But it can't all be redeemed in this life. 
And so Jesus, they bring up suffering, he brings up eternity. Imagine it this way. Imagine that the moon, something crazy happened with the moon, and now the moon was going to crash into the earth. Just so you know, that would be a very bad thing. It'd be really bad. We, we would all be dead. Um, so now imagine we go out, you know, after the service, and you can see the moon, and it's getting closer and closer and closer. And then tonight, it's getting closer and closer and closer. It's starting to fill the whole sky. Okay? What would happen to all your problems? They would go, isn't it true that all your problems, if the moon was going to crash into the, let's say it was going to crash into the earth next week, and they started, it was all the headlines. They wouldn't talk about anything else. There'd be no sports. There'd be no nothing. If, there, if the moon was going to crash into the earth next week, and you would see this thing getting closer and closer and closer and closer, all your problems would go away. Isn't that true? All those bills you can't pay, you wouldn't be thinking about them. <laughs> your marriage problems, oh, you and your wife, oh, hold me. They would just all be gone because why? Perspective. Those same problems that to you today just seem so big and so awful, how can a good God even allow this? The moment the moon would start to fill our viewfinder, all those problems would be insignificant and you would forget about them. Say, what does that have to do with the story? Jesus is doing the same thing, except it's not a fake story. For Jesus, judgment day looms as if the moon was going to crash into the earth. Judgment day looms. There's a crash day coming. There's a day when all of us, whether you believe in God today or not, where we are going to collide with judgment day. And after that comes eternity. And for Jesus, he can see nothing else. You think your problems are big? Guys, you think your problems are big? One day you're going to stand before Jesus, and after that is eternity. So repent so you don't perish on that day. You don't have to figure out why you're going through all the bad stuff right now. Because one day, judgment day is crashing into us. And the only thing ultimately that matters is, are you on God's good side? Now, if you've accepted Jesus, you are. And he's not going to judge you. But in the meantime, doesn't that give you endurance for suffering? Unless you repent. Don't you want to suffer well? Knowing that what really matters is this looming day. And after that is forever. Revelation 21, verse 4. I'll finish with this. Revelation 21, verse 4. There's a day coming. I don't have this one on the screen. There's a day when God himself will come to earth and set up his kingdom here on earth. And it says this in Revelation 21, verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from your eyes. But you know, I want to stop there for just a moment. The fact that he's having to wipe away our tears means that when he comes, we've got tears. He's going to wipe away every tear. But that means we've got tears that he has to wipe away. This lifetime before he gets here is, has a lot of bad in it. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And after that, everything's going to make sense. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Amen. I want you to bow your heads with me and close your eyes. Lord Jesus, some of us here this morning, probably all of us are going through various trials, some much less, some much more. Some of us are here this morning and we've still been thrashing, and that's okay. You love those people and you love us. But Lord, we want to, we want to let go 
we want to be able to let go and entrust ourselves to you. Would you help every one of us here today? Some of us need it more than others. Holy Spirit, would you help us to let go and trust you to get us through this thing? To get us through this rocky patch in our marriage, to get us through this thing with our children, to get us through this thing with our finances, to get us through this thing with our health, that you will walk with us in this. And you will not answer all of our questions why, but you say to us this morning, take heart, because you have overcome the world. Would you give each one of us another dose and experience of your Holy Spirit this morning, even as we finish in worship? In Jesus' amazing name we pray, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.